Well, turn your Bibles, if you would, to the ninth chapter of the book of Romans. We're going to be looking together at the first five verses. Paul writes, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Father, as we open up your word, we come to a new section of this great and glorious letter to the Romans, Father, and uh, we pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts to understand and apply the truths we're going to see today. Lord, it is a special day. It's also a day, Lord, where our church is going to be gathering after this meeting to seek your will, Father, for uh, the next elder pastor of this church, Lord, I pray that you would guide us, give us wisdom. Lord, direct us into your perfect and, and blessed will. Father, I pray as well that you would just take your word and use it to grow your church, strengthen our, our resolve and our faith, but especially, Lord, that you would use it to bring a heart in all of us that would reach out to the lost of our community and in our families. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I received a text last week from Pete, and here's what it said. Christmas Day, are we in Romans, or are we going to do something different? And... uh, you know, it was a good question to ask. Here was Tuesday, by the way, when he sent that. And uh, I believe I replied something like this, which I rarely do. I have no idea. <laughs> it's a good question. And so I went back and I reread Romans 9, 1 through 5 many times. And then I came up with my answer to his question or to his text. And that was, it's not either or, but it's both. And so that's what I'd like to do is, is preach to you this morning from Romans 9, 1 through 5, a message that speaks to us on this Christmas morning. In other words, the opening verses of Romans 9, uh, there, there's a message that we need to hear today. Uh, the church used to be a holiday for the C&E group, and uh, some of you know what that is. You know, friends, loved ones, neighbors who, you know, they, they come through the doors of the church on C and E, Christmas and Easter. And historically, there's been a segment of the population that, that, that does come to church on the, at least those two days of the year. C, they come to church on Christmas, and uh, which tells me something that that means to them at least... Christmas is a bigger deal than what most people think it is, and it's a place where I need to come and worship the, uh, the birth of Christ. 
But also the E is uh, they come on Easter to really worship the resurrection of Christ. And upon his death, his burial, his resurrection, we see his victory over sin. But here's the thing. The idea of C&E attenders is almost gone. You know, I, I say that, and I believe it's almost totally gone. Because there's very few Christians or professing Christians or church attenders that come out just on those two days a year. Now, the trend right now is, is that people are not attending church on Christmas. Uh, Gallup poll this year, Gallup concludes the U.S. is clearly less religious nation than it has been in the past, uh, given steep declines over the past two decades in religious identification. Church membership and church attendance is down. Uh, another poll I read said that uh, nine, in 1990, 80% uh, or not, excuse me, not 90% identified as Christians. In 2020, that number has dropped down to 64%. And so you can see where the trend is, is, is going in, in our own nation. And here we are today, we're worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. If we walked out the doors of the church, as we looked out in the community around Cody, we would find most of Cody at home, you know, in their jammies and having cocoa and and opening presents and, and, and with their families, and that's a good thing. We looked to our own family members. We'd find friends and neighbors that aren't worshiping with us this Christmas morning. In fact, we're becoming more like that little church in Bethlehem back over 2,000 years ago. When Jesus was born, there was just a handful of shepherds that came and worshipped him. As we open together the ninth chapter of Romans, it's my prayer that this passage today will provoke every one of us and, and provoke our hearts to see the many unsaved fellow citizens, neighbors, loved ones, and friends that are out there. And God will do a work of grace in your heart to bring compassion for the lost, a heart that wants to reach out to those who are without Christ. So my prayer is these five verses might ignite a passion in your hearts that unbelievers might come to Christ and, and be saved and, and that we would feel a heaviness for their spiritual need in their life. Now, we come to chapter 9, we have 9, 10, 11, which is another section of the book of Romans. It's one whole unit. And it's interesting, if you really stopped at the end of 8 and picked it up at 12, it would be a consistent letter to the Romans, ending with uh, the gospel, ending with assurance, starting in chapter 12, the practical application in the Christian life. So right in the middle, you have sandwiched in there 9, 10, and 11. And the question is, why is it there? What's the purpose of this section of Scripture? Well, Paul was anticipating an objection at the very end of chapter 8. And I think what he was anticipating is an objection something like this. What about the Jews? Paul, what about the Jews? You, You just told us that God is sovereign, and He is. You just told us that those whom He foreknew, He predestined. The predestined, he called, he called, he justified, he's going to glorify. We heard that. Now, is this gospel of justification by faith just for Gentiles? What about the Jews? 
Has God rejected his people that he gave a promise to? If salvation was first given to the Jews, why did the Jews reject Jesus? How do we explain unbelieving Jews today? Why were the Jews rejecting the gospel and persecuting the believers? So this is the, the objection. I gave a lot of questions. But this is the objection that I believe he's going to be addressing in 9, 10, and 11. As he tells us, what about the Jews? Paul will answer in 9 through 11. And we're going to see that answer over the next several weeks. Um, we're about to enter into, by the way, and I think most of you know this, one of the great chapters of all the Bible. I keep saying that in Romans, don't I? Boy, this next one, this is, this is the best. This is the greatest. Well, this verse here, but really, Romans 9 is like, it's the top of the mountain. It's, 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 it's one of the best in all of Scripture. And uh, today we're going to look at the first five verses of chapter 9. We're going to learn from Paul that uh, you don't ever want to become cold in your heart towards those who are lost. Uh, one of the doctrine, objections to the doctrines of grace goes something like this. Oh, you believe in election? Yeah. Well, then your heart must be pretty cold to, towards those who are lost. You probably don't evangelize. That's one of the common objections we hear over and over again. In other words, we don't have compassion for those who are without Christ because we believe that, well, if God's going to save them, God will save them. You know, then we become that church that's the, the frozen chosen. We don't want to be that church. If our faithfulness to the Great Commission is, is not motivated by love, if our, if our faithfulness to the Great Commission is not driven by a heart of compassion, it will either stop and become a dead duty or it's going to stop altogether. What drives us to reach out with, with, with the good news of Jesus Christ is simply this it's a heart. And it's a heart full of compassion to those who are without the Lord Jesus Christ. So I pray today we'll learn from Paul, from his heart, and especially his heart towards the Jews, that our heart might learn to be motivated and driven uh, by compassion. So let's look first of all at uh, Paul's personal grief for, for the lost around him, the Jews. As a Jew himself... Paul had a great spiritual love and concern for Israel. He was a Jew himself, so he loved his people. Paul knew that if he was to reach the Jews, he had to first know, they had to know that he loved them. He had to care for them. He, his heart was attached to them. And so he brings them his heart before he brings them his theology. And look how he, he, he introduces it. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I don't know about you, when anybody tells me they're speaking the truth, that tells me, uh uh-uh, little warning signs go up. Maybe everything they said up to this point in time has not been true. Why is it now true? Well, we know that everything that Paul wrote here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is true. But what he wants to know is what I'm about to say is absolutely true because I, I think you might not believe me when I say it. In fact, Jesus Christ is going to be my witness that what I'm saying is true. Everything I say, everything I feel, Christ be my witness, it is true. He knows all. He knows my thoughts, my motives, and he affirms them. So several times, by the way, Paul does this. Paul frequently will 
tell his, his readers that he's telling the truth, and he will swear to that being true, swear to, by, by the name of God. In 2 Corinthians one twenty three, we read that Paul writes, But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. So God be my witness. In 11.31 of 2 Corinthians, the, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, He who is blessed forever, knows that I'm, I'm not lying. So this was something he would frequently do in his writings. And then he adds after that, I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So not only, is, not only does Christ bear witness that I'm telling you the truth, but my conscience bears witness that I'm also telling you the truth. And, and that conscience is being actually is being driven by the Holy Spirit who indwells me. Titus 1.15, Paul writes, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled, the, the unbelieving, nothing is pure, but to their minds and to their conscience, they are defiled as well. And so we see that to those who are pure, have a pure heart, have a pure conscience. He says, The Holy Spirit indwells me, and the Holy Spirit who indwells me who I walk with and I walk in, who I obey, he commends my conscience. And here's what my conscience tells me. What I'm saying to you is absolutely true. And I believe the reason why he's doing this is because he knows what he's about to say. And he knows what he's about to say is going to take the listener, the reader, and go, what? I can't believe that. So he's a... Dressing it right up front. No, it's, it's true. He says, I want you to know my heart. And now he's going to reveal his anguish of heart. He's going to tell the Jews. I feel a great sorrow and unstopping grief. That I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for my fellow Jew. As Paul looked around and he saw many of 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 his own people refusing to come to Christ, it broke his heart. He had great sorrow. In fact, the word here, it actually, his heart actually ached over the loss that were around him. Perhaps he realized that, but for the work of God in their life and by God's grace, uh, they might remain persecutors as he was a persecutor and continue to reject Christ. And he describes it here as an unceasing anguish in my heart. He doesn't stop. This is an anguish that's there 24-7. It's there all the time. It's a heaviness of heart. It's an ache of my heart. It's a sorrow that's in my heart. It's driven by a heart of compassion. And I don't know if you ever felt that way for someone who didn't know Christ. I mean, did you have a child, a spouse, a loved one, a friend a neighbor over the fence, someone that's close to you, and your heart actually ached for their salvation. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't get it out of your mind. It's always there. It's 24-7. You go to sleep, and this is the last thing you think of. You wake up in the morning. It's the first thing you think of because they're close, and you love them, and you have compassion for them, and you realize that without Christ, they're lost. So Paul goes on and gives an explanation. And by the way, not just loved ones, but people. I mean, do you look at people when you go out in society 
and looked to them as, as individuals created in the image of God, individuals who are lost in their sins, individuals that if they continue in the pathway they're going with their blindness and their darkness of heart, they're going to go to hell forever. I mean, do you, you see individual people that way. Well, Paul goes on and gives an explanation we see in verse 3. For I could wish that myself was accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. My ache is so bad for those who are lost, the Jews that I love that, 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 are, that are lost, that uh, I, I, I would be willing to be accursed, he says. Bring the wrath of God upon me so that they will escape the wrath of God. That, they might, that I might be cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. You know, the curse is the word anathema. It's, 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 it's that the wrath of God, the curse of God would be upon me. And that I would be cut off from his blood. And I'd be cut off from his life. I'd be cut off from his forgiveness and his righteousness so that they might experience the righteousness of God. Now, I, I, I know that we realize that Paul here is speaking with hyperbole. He's, this is a figure of speech, obviously. We, we know that he can't be cut off. We just finished reading Romans chapter 8 and verses 38 and 39, and we saw there that, uh, that no one, nothing, no one, nothing can separate us from what? The love of God. And so we, we, we can't be separated. But he's trying to express to us his feelings, how deep these feelings and how deep this anguish is that I would be willing to be cursed on your behalf. I, I would be willing to be cut off for your benefit spiritually. If it were possible, I'd give up all my riches in Christ for you. This is how much love he had for the lost. How much he truly longed for their salvation. How much anguish of heart he had. I'd be ready to spend eternity in hell so that you might spend eternity in heaven. The great trade-off. I'm willing to do that for you, even though it's impossible. This was his passion. This is what drove Paul. This is why he, was, he went out and he preached everywhere he went. He preached Christ. It wasn't a duty for him. This isn't religion. This isn't like, oh, i got to go out and witness and tell people about Jesus and check off the check box on my, on my list of things to do. It's not that at all. This is a man whose heart loved the lost. He had compassion for the lost. He had tears for the lost. He had anguish for the lost. His heart ached for those who didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And that ache never stopped. It was all the time. Isn't this really the mind of Christ? Wasn't that his mind as well as Paul's? The sacrificial lamb wasn't born just to come in and say, well, okay, Father, I guess I better do this. You told me to, so I'm going to go down and offer my life up so people can be saved. I'm going to be obedient. Kind of a salute to the Heavenly Father before he was born in the manger. Now we read, for example, in Matthew 9.36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. 
you hear and you see in his life the anguish, the compassion he had for those who were lost around him. And by the way, these feelings in, 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 in uh, Greek times, Roman times, first century times, uh, they thought they came from your intestines. We, today we say, well, it comes from our heart. Well, they actually saw it more coming from the intestines, all these emotions of anguish, of compassion. And so they felt it in the pit of their stomach. That's what Paul's saying here. He felt these things in the pit of his stomach to feel the depth of emotion of Paul. You know, we hear it in our Lord's lament in Matthew 23, 37. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones these who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and and you were not willing. I mean, there's the Savior looking out over Jerusalem, the Jews, with a heart of compassion, lamenting of the fact that they would not come. There's an anguish that's there. Romans 5.8, but God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ loved us. He died for us. He died for sinners. He loved sinners. He felt that love. He was full of compassion, full of anguish. Then Paul adds, for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I'm feeling this for my fellow Jew. And so his compassion is directed towards his kinsmen, his blood. These are his blood. These are fellow Jews. And he's... Grieving for all, but he's grieving especially for those who are his own. Now, each one of us in this room have kinsmen. Each one of us in this room have friends and loved ones that are very, very close to us. Some of the bloodline that's connected to us. There's moms here. There's dads here. There's grandmas and grandpas. There's children and grandchildren and perhaps other extended family members. And I don't know about you, but I, I feel when I pray a special urgency to pray for my family first. I, I, I believe that's biblical, because I'm looking at Paul here praying especially for the Jews first before the Gentiles, even though he was sent to the Gentiles. But usually when I pray for the lost, I, I, I usually pray in concentric circles. I don't know if you pray that way. But I, I pray because I have a, an ache in my heart for those who are my children my children that are without Christ, or my children who didn't know Christ. And, and then out from there, I go to my grandchildren. We have 22 grandchildren. Not all of them are expressing faith in Christ yet. And then you go out from there, and pretty soon now you're out in the community, and you're talking about my fellow Cody citizens, and you have a special heart for them because we're citizens of the same town and our fellow Wyoming citizens and, and fellow Americans. And concentrically it goes out into the mission field. There should be, in every one of our hearts as Christians, an ache of the heart. There there should be an anguish in our heart. There should be a compassion in our heart for those around us who are our kinsmen without the Lord Jesus Christ and are lost. That's why it's important this Christmas that we go into this world and out from this manger scene and... uh, uh, with the same heart in which we see with the Apostle Paul. 
Even the same heart of the shepherds. They, they came and saw the, 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 the Savior that was born. But in Luke 2.17 it says, And when they saw it, they made known this saying told to them by the angels. So they, they, they saw Christ. They were so moved by Christ. They realized others need to know about Christ. And they went out and told others. We never want to let our doctrine kill our compassion for the lost. We never want theology to pull away at our heartstrings so we no longer have any feeling for those who are without Christ. I believe if our hearts are, are, are well-tuned spiritually, they will ache as Paul's heart ached. And they'll ache with a desire for others to come to Christ. So you go to, you go to, you go to Albertsons. And you're in the checkout stand and there's the clerk that's there. Maybe the clerk that you know does not, does not know Christ. And there he's ringing you up and checking you out and filling up the bags. And you look into her eyes and you realize there's a person. There's a person without Christ. And that should even, or just check out, get our money and leave. Stir our hearts with compassion for that person. The unsaved neighbor over the fence that unsaved family member, spouse, child without Christ, our hearts should ache with compassion. You know, I'm not pushing it too far to say that at times it should bring tears to our eyes, the sorrow for those who are lost. And by the way, this is a God-given heart. This isn't something you can drum up and just say, okay, I'm going to go out and be more compassionate towards the lost. This is God working in your heart to produce this. Uh, if you find your heart hardened today towards the lost, indifferent towards those you deal with and, and those even in your own family, if your heart's not there where we're talking about this morning, only God can bring that to you. Being united with Christ. Uh, you know, you find it by looking at reading Paul. You find it in Scripture by reading about Christ, about reading about some of the prophets of old, the weeping prophets. And you ask God, God, would you do that to my heart? God, would you change my heart to be compassionate and full of anguish for those who are without Christ? And I think even reading, you know, I'm just adding to that a sense of some of the great missionary stories, some of the great heroes of the past you read about, and how they, they just love people. They went out, they sacrificed everything. They had tears in their eyes and went out and witnessed. You know, all of you in this room who are in Christ are ambassadors for Christ. Um, that means your prayer should be earnest prayers for the lost. Regularly, faithfully, pleading with God for souls. But with tears in your eyes. Uh, it's, this is the heart of those who are called to the mission field. You never are called to the mission field if you just think of people as people and, you know, it's, well, we're just going to try and witness to them if we can or whatever. But when that ache gets in your heart, when, when, that, when that compassion comes to your heart and you start looking at nations and people in nations with that kind of a heart, it drives you to the, hear the call of God to go to the mission field. This should be the heart of every man that stands behind this pulpit. 
Spurgeon said this, he says, I cannot understand a man who stands up and delivers a discourse in a cold and different manner as if he cared not for the souls of the hearers. I think the true gospel minister will have a real yearning over souls, something like Rachel when she cried out, give me children or I will die. I mean, that's the heart. And I have to confess, I don't have that heart every time I preach. I mean, in fact, I might, if I'm honest, say I rarely have that heart as much as I should when I preach. But I long for this kind of a heart when I preach. I long for a time when I could preach, and actually tears would come down my eyes because of such compassion and love for each one of you without the Lord Jesus Christ. Richard Baxter shortened that whole thing to say, I, I preach uh, as a dying man to dying men. And then he also reflected on the privileges these Jews had, which really broke his heart even more, because here they are rejecting their Messiah after all the Messiah had done for them. Look what it says in verse 4. Well, they're Israelites. They're descendants of Abraham, through Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And to them belonged the adoption. Israel is, not, Israel is my son, my, my firstborn. And I believe that here we see Israel spoken of more collectively than individually. In, in, in Christ, we talk about individual adoption. But here I, I, I see Paul talking about an adoption of, of a nation. Exodus 4.22, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, collectively. Israel was God's child amongst all the nations of the world. Israel as a nation, as, as God's son, as he adopted them in, in a very special way. And then he says, they were given the glory. The Shekinah glory of God was given to the Jews. And so here they were, they were wandering around in the wilderness, and they had this pillar in front of them, as a, a pillar of what? The glory of God led them in a very unique way. Exodus 16.10, and as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel. They looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. The glory was at Sinai. The glory was in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, in the temple. And they were given the covenants. God made promises to, to Israel, to the Jews. There was an Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, Davidic covenant, of an eternal kingdom. He bound himself to them in covenant. And he gave them the law, it says. The moral law of God, the commandments, the ceremonial law, the civil law, was all given by God to these people. And then the worship. They were given the worship. Temple worship. Wherein God, you worshipped God through the ceremonial law, sacrifices were offered, cleansings, priesthood, in fact, Exodus 29, 43 says, There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of, of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priest. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. These are, this is the kind of relationship the Jews had, the very blessings from God himself. 
And of course, that included the priesthood. And all of this was a foreshadowing of Christ who had come in his sacrificial death. We see he adds in once more, but that's not, all the prom- that's not all the blessings. He also had promises. And so he had promises in the Old Testament that spoke towards the coming of the Messiah in the New Testament. And so there's Christmas promises attached to this as well. In Isaiah 7.14, you had the promise of the birth of a virgin who would give birth to, to the son and conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. You have the promise in Micah 5.2 of, of Bethlehem being the place where Jesus would be born. You have the promise in Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout out loud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And, of course, they were given the patriarchs. And, of course, the patriarchs, we, we saw that if you trace the lineage of Christ in, in Matthew and the lineage of Christ in Luke, you have the patriarchs that are mentioned there. They were all given to them. They were all uh, the ones who would, 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 would lead to, is, which is the next part of that verse, uh, the lineage of Christ is, is the Christ who is God. And so you have Matthew, you have Luke, John four twenty two through 26, the deity of Christ. So the Jews had been given great privileges, great light, great grace, and there was great rejection. And yet they were the chosen ones of God. Why is that? This is the question he's going to be answering. Many of us have been graced with Christian privileges. Some of you in this room have had privileges way above others of us in this room. And what do I mean by that? I mean that some of you, some of you younger ones perhaps that are here today, I don't know if you've ever reflected on the great light and the great blessing and the great grace that came to you by having Christian parents. Parents who took you to church. Parents who taught you how and would sing hymns with you. Parents who brought you under the hearing of the Word of God being preached. Parents who read Bible verses to you. Parents who prayed together with you. I mean, we look at all the blessings that God brought upon the Jews, and Paul is saying, listen, they never turned to Christ. They had all this light, and they never turned to Christ. And yet we in our own day, we, we have many who, who have had great light brought to them, great blessings. Sometimes we take those blessings for granted. Binding light, the blinding light of truth. And even if you never had all of that with, with Christian parents, you're here today. And you're hearing the gospel preached. And you're hearing the light come to you and seeing the light come to you from the gospel. Could it be like Israel that you're here today with all the blessings, but also without faith and in a heart of unbelief? The Bible speaks of to those who much is given, much will be required. Luke 12 records, but the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a, a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, 
they will demand the more. And so you can see that uh, with great light comes great responsibility to come to Christ and to be one of His. You know, could it be that uh, you might be here like Israel in unbelief? And if you are, I would like to call you this Christmas morning to faith in Christ. Any young person here, any older person here today who has never trusted in Christ alone. I have prayed about this message. I'm glad Pete asked me the question. I might have gone a different direction if he hadn't asked me that question on Tuesday. But since I've read this over and over again, my heart has begun, began to to ache, and to ache for anyone here without Christ. You know, my call to you would be to flee. Young person without Christ, flee to Christ. And by that I don't mean get out of your chair and run. I just mean simply in your heart, leave where you are and flee to the one who can save you, the one whose arms are open, the one who is is calling you perhaps to come. And he is, he is he's a Savior that delights in saving lost people that faithfully come to Him. And when you flee to Christ, you're leaving behind your sin. So that's, that's a conscious decision on your part. I'm going to flee to Christ by faith, but I also am going to leave behind those sins in my life. And I'm going to come to Christ as my Lord and my King and by His grace, live for Him as He not only cleanses me, but gives me the pathway of holiness and righteousness. I pray that that's you today. I pray you would respond. What a day to get saved. December 25th, 2022. Trust Christ and be saved. And interesting how this closes with a doxology of praise. He, he writes at the very... Very end of verse 5, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. The babe in the manger, he moves our soul, he's blessed forever, and now we break out in a doxology of praise to him. Look at that last verse, by the way, in your own Bible. Notice what it says about Jesus Christ. You have to see it in your own in your, in, in, in your own words and on your page of your own Bible, because it says, Jesus Christ, who is God over all. Now, can you think of any more clear declaration of the deity of Christ than that? Jesus Christ, who is God over all and blessed forever. You know, uh, I wish that every false religion, every cult, would open their Bible to the book of Romans chapter 9, open it up to the fifth verse and read this to themselves because I don't think you can get away from the fact this clearly says, in absolute terms, Jesus Christ is God over all, the deity of Christ. You can fill in the blank. There isn't anything that Christ isn't over. He's over everything, including your life, your eternal destiny. He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. He is blessed forever. And to be blessed forever, He must be eternal. And if people are going to be blessing Him for eternity, then there must be eternal people that have everlasting life that will be praising Him forever. And to which all of God's people came and saw the end of this verse and said together what? Amen. Let's pray. So, Father, we, we come today, Lord, with hearts 
I, I confess, Father, my heart has it's been cold. It's been indifferent. My heart has been one that is not full of compassion as it should. I lack the ache, Father, that uh, Paul had for his own fellow kinsmen. And Lord, I pray you would do that heart work in me. And you would be kind and do that hard work to every believer here today, Lord. Lord, we're going into a new year and, and, and new opportunities to go out and proclaim Christ. Oh, Lord, may we do so with a heart full of compassion for our neighbors, for our loved ones and friends. Lord, I pray you would stir us, stir our hearts. Do whatever works necessary to produce this heart in us as a people, as a church. Oh, Lord, help us not to be cold and indifferent, but hot and, and also a church that is full of compassion for, for the needy. May we see people, Lord, as individuals, image bearers of, of God, fallen by their own sin, feeling the consequences of sin and experiences that, that in their life today. Oh, Father, could it be that this would motivate us to, to, with tears in our eyes to take the message of redemption to them personally? Oh, Lord, help us towards that end. We thank you for the birth of Christ. We thank you for the salvation we have in him. We ask your blessing on each one here today in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's, uh, let's stand and sing with joy.